Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about behavioral design in the digital era, structuring the balance point between productivity and well-being. My first guest is Amy Blankson, and this interview was originally recorded in October of 2018. All righty, let's talk about how we manage our lives. You know, our day-to-day, we're living in such a busy and complicated time. And I want to talk about lifestyle management in the 21st century, relationships, well-being, productivity, and doing all of this in a digitally driven modern world. Amy Blankson has become one of the world's leading experts on the connection between positive psychology and technology. She is the only person to be named a point of light by two presidents for creating a movement to activate positive culture change. A sought-after speaker and consultant, Amy has now worked with organizations like Google, NASA, the U.S. Army, and the XPRIZE Foundation to help foster a sense of well-being in the digital era. Amy received her BA from Harvard and MBA from Yale School of Management. Most recently, she was a featured professor in Oprah's Happiness Course. Amy is also the author of two books, The Future of Happiness and an award-winning children's book called Ripple's Effect. And today we are happy to celebrate her new book, The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. What a joy it is to be here with you. I feel the same way. So let's talk about the future of happiness, because there are some skeptics and curmudgeons out there who think, hmm, happiness, the future with all that's going on, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I hear this often. Um, we are bombarded by the media with information about how technology is destroying the fabric of our society, how it's disconnecting our families. It's literally heroin for uh, digital heroin um, because it's so addictive. And what I felt was that there was so much information in this field that I really wanted to explore a little bit more about understanding, is this really true? Are we really um, outpacing ourselves with technology um, faster than our happiness can keep up with it? And so I did some digging into the research and decided to write a book on this topic because I felt like it was a pain point that I hear time and again from the audiences I speak to who are just worried about where are we heading in the future? What is this really going to look like? And not to do a spoiler alert, but <laughs> the, the good news is that I don't think we're as, as bad off as the media portrays. I think that there are certainly risks, there are distractions, there are dangers with the modern digital era. But I do think that the future looks incredibly bright in terms of how technology can help us to tune in and not just to zone out, that there are ways that we can use technology better that are within our grasp to shape how the future is going to look. And what I wanted to do through my book was to call people to the mat to say, hey, you know, yes, there are some challenges that we're facing that we've never had to face before, but there's some wonderful opportunities we have to embrace technology for the good. And what do we need to do now to set ourselves up for a future of happiness and success? And so that led to, to a, a book filled with strategies, with um, gadgets and gizmos and devices that I've uncovered through my research that I hope will help readers to find new ways to interact through technology with their families and their colleagues and um, really to use it for themselves as well for personal development. 
Let's go back to uh, where you started talking about digital heroin, because I think this is important for people to recognize that technology, the way software systems are designed and the way these apps are designed, the developers are trying to hack into our brains to get us hooked on these things mm -hmm. because we get a little dopamine release, right? We get a little teeny drip every time we click, swipe, like whatever, and, and, and also oxytocin. I mean, there are chemical reactions that are going on in our brains that are attracting us to these devices. No doubt. And you are so right. I mean, we are swimming upstream trying to make technology useful to us in a non-addictive way, but I do think it's possible. There's a, a fellow named Tristan Harris, who was actually the Google design ethicist um, at at Stanford. Well, he started at Stanford. He was part of the uh, Center for Persuasive Technology. So this is the, the company and the department at Stanford that was responsible for creating things like the Amazon recommended products algorithm or Facebook, who should you be friends with? Um, it's, a, it's a type of technology design that is responsible for nudging you in a certain direction. And while they can nudge you in, in fantastic ways for better choices, they can also nudge you in some incredibly negative ways that if you are trying to stay on your budget, it's it's increasingly difficult to do so when Amazon knows your favorite color and they know that you like peppermint chocolate and they know that you are um, getting ready for Black Friday sales. <laughs> so <laughs> all this information is, is really culminating in uh, a scenario where it makes it even more difficult for us to stay on budget or to make good choices because we're getting this flood of information into our lives. And so Tristan Harris actually was speaking with some of the Google design executives about the ethics of what we create with these type of persuasive technologies. And he felt like while Google definitely heard him and understood that this was an important facet of design, they also had a lot of market pressures to create products that were increasingly addictive, that had higher numbers of page views, and that were encouraging people to stay on the apps or the websites for longer, because that's how companies measure success, right? And so what he did is he actually left Google and went and formed a company he calls Time Well Spent. And the idea is to support companies and business models that will foster a desire to create apps that measure their success based on how effective they are for us, which is a shocking and novel concept, right? So not how long you're staying on the app, not how many people download the app, but does the app actually work, which is crazy, right? Um, and so he's been supporting a number of different initiatives uh, from Calendly, which I use myself. It's a, a calendaring program that helps you eliminate the amount of time that you spend going back and forth between setting up Google appointments or um, meeting appointments. And so it just shows people your calendar. They select a time that works for them. The program automatically will send out notifications for both of you to put it on your calendar and you're done. Um, so the idea is that you're using your time more effectively to do what you want to do. And that's why we started using technology in the first place is so that we could have more quality time and to do the things we really want to do. And instead, what we find is technology keeps drawing us away into this web of more time on the computers, more time on the apps. And the idea that we really want to focus on is how do we really use that time well? And so I love what Tristan is doing, what he's created. And I feel like that is so important to shaping this conversation. And it's important to think about where, what are, what are we downloading? What kind of apps are we buying into? What kind of gadgets do we ascribe to? Because the more that we buy from apps and devices and gadgets and companies that are trying to become addictive services, the more that we're sending the message that that's the kind of content we want. Um, so I call people out in the book uh, to be conscious consumers, to be thoughtful about the types of apps they're downloading, to put excuse me, put pressure on organizations to create the types of programs that we want to see. Do we want more apps and gadgets that help us tune in? Do we want um, devices that don't send us notifications every five minutes? Do we want less email 
threads and, and subscribing automatically to things that we don't actually want. Um, so I think there's a real movement to move away from this digital heroin into using technology for the simplest of purposes and then being done with it so we can get on with living life. I, I I agree with you. And I think that you bring up something that is really important, and that is the vice virtue of technology and the silver lining. Like many of us receive so much, um, you know, so many notifications, so many emails, and we're juggling so many different kinds of apps and programs that it brings the consumer to the point of learning discernment. Absolutely. Say a little bit more about learning discernment and what you mean by that. Well, what I mean by learning discernment is that, you know, if you, if you have a, a flurry of activity, you know, it's just a burst of energy and you find out that you cannot manage everything that is coming in or being thrown at you. And I, and I, and I go through this almost every day. I've gotten good at discerning, well, I, this is not of use to me anymore. I need to either unsubscribe block or um, sort of call out of the pool of technology that I'm working with every day. And I find that that is the upside, you know, that I'm learning how to be a little bit more clear and focused on what I don't want and then dialing in or drilling down to those things that I do or are of use to me. Absolutely. I think the more that we can do that, the better. Um, in fact, one of the services that I've fallen in love with and um, have been starting to use myself is called unroll.me. And in one fell swoop, it will capture all of the, the subscriptions that you have in your email and help you to unroll from all of them all at once one click of a button, as opposed to um, having to unsubscribe one at a time um, very slowly. I think that that's a very useful and helpful process to be able to um, just be done with it, get off of all those lists that are distracting, um, turn off all the non-human notifications that are just reminders, um, uninstall those apps that you don't ever use, and to focus in on what's most important to you. And there's a movement called digital minimalism that is really beginning to um, emerge that, that says, yes, we love technology, but let's, let's cut down to the most important things so that we're not constantly distracted by all the other things. Wow. We're going to need to take a break. And before we do, I want to give Amy's contact information. The book we're talking about once again is The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. You can learn more at amyblankson.com. On Twitter, you can find her at amyblankson. And on Facebook, amy.blankson. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. back continuing the conversation about behavioral design in the digital era structuring the balance point between productivity and well-being let's get back to the conversation with my guest amy blankson this interview was originally recorded in october of 2018 Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we are giving you strategies for managing your technology and ultimately your happiness in this 21st century. Um, we're talking with Amy Blankson today. She is the author of the new book, The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. In the first segment, we were talking about how technology is both a vice and a virtue and how to perhaps dial it back. And Amy gave us a couple of really good ideas for managing our calendar. You mentioned Calendly. You also mentioned another um, program that will help you clean out that clogged inbox. Yes, unroll.me. Unroll me, please. <laughs> 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 so let's talk about some other strategies for balancing productivity and well-being in this digital era. Wonderful. So I think one of the first things that I like to ask people when I'm helping them to come up with a plan for 
dealing with the digital distraction in their life is to talk about what I call the third prong. And the third prong is just like when you're plugging in um, an electrical plug into the wall. If you have that third wire that grounds you, it actually helps to channel and focus energy for the electricity. It makes it more stable. And so what I talk about is how do you tap into your third prong, which I define as a set of guiding principles or beliefs that help shape how, when, where, and why you're using technology. And I'll tell you why I like to start here, because I often, when I'm speaking to audiences, get the question about, well, should the schools make this blanket rule about technology? Should corporations change the way that they interact with uh, employees around technology? Should the government make some policies that shape how the industry is, um, is reaching people through persuasive technology, for instance? And I think that there is just too much global diversity. There are too many different types of reasons for using technology and different um, attitudes towards technology. There's different family dynamics around technology that it really comes back to what do you value? How do you think about technology in your life? What value do you place? Why do you interact with it? So that when you can define that for yourself, it really shapes how you individually live your life. And from that point forward, it gives you this opportunity to set up the rest of your your family or work policies or personal uses of technology to be more effective with it. And so let me be a little bit more specific. Um, one of my friends named Raj Daniels, he wound up having a hard time with opening and closing his phone. He found that he is a he's a CEO of a tech startup company and he really wanted to be more thoughtful and intentional about using technology. So he decided that when he was on the phone, it took him away from his family time that he wanted to be with his family more and he wanted to be more thoughtful in his blogging. And so he set up a lock screen on his phone with two arrows. One arrow is red and it points to the left and one arrow is green. It points to the right and it says towards my goals. And the red arrow points to the left saying away from my goals. And every time he looked at his phone, before he swiped to the right, it gave him a moment to have a gut check about is unlocking his phone actually helping move him towards his goals? Because for him personally, he didn't want to use the phone as much. And so that was just a wonderful way for him to tie that message back. I've seen a number of other folks who, for instance, they value the dinner hour and they really want to have better conversation around the dinner time, a dinner table with their family. And so what they did was create a phone stack and everybody who sat down at the dinner table had to stack up their phones. And the first person to reach for their phone either had to wash all the dishes or they had to skip dessert or maybe they owed everybody a quarter, whatever it was. But it just set an intention and a focus on, hey, this is not how I want to use my technology. Here's how we're going to adjust this so that we can be positive reinforcements for each other and hold each other accountable. And I think that the more that we can have those gut checks, it can help us fight against the temptation and the impulse to check our phones. Um, in the course of my research, the single most shocking statistic I came across was that the average smartphone user today opens and closes their phone on average 150 times. And that sounds like a lot, right? But what really got me was that if you do the math and you think through, okay, it takes, let's say optimistically, it takes one minute to open your phone, check a message, and then close your phone again. That's two and a half hours of your day just opening and closing your phone, not even <laughs> sending messages. That's just checking them. <laughs> and it really, it just... Uh, put things in perspective for me. That's actually 38 days a year, one, one twelfth of your year, just focused on opening and closing your phone. So we're talking about a major problem here where we've lost control over the fact of what we're using our time for. We're not even aware of what's happening when we pick up our phone to check it and see if somebody has sent us a message. In fact, we're anticipating messages so often that we don't even have to look at our phone or touch our phone to lose productivity. If we just see our phone, this is called the mere presence study, you just see your phone by your computer, it makes you less effective. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh, what I, started, <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> I'm certainly guilty as charged here, but, um, my new strategy is that I'll just take my phone when I'm working and I hide it behind my laptop screen. 
because if I know that seeing it is making me less effective, I just need it out of my visual space and I need to be able to have the opportunity to regain control over my impulses and to retrain my brain about what focus actually looks like. Um, so that's, that's one good nugget I've really uncovered that hopefully will help some of the listeners out there with their own uh, phone use behaviors as well. You know, uh, when we talk about managing technology, I think this whole thing provides us with an opportunity to become more mindful, you know, rather to be sucked into the vortex and lost in space or cyberspace, if you will, that it's really about making these conscious decisions. And like you say, holding one another accountable. But I think rather than legislating, you know, um, policy, I think it's more important that we teach critical thinking and discernment and emotional intelligence so we can make these informed decisions. No, no, I'm going to put the phone away after six because I just want to plug in with my family. Yes. And I think the temptation is to have an outside force create a rule to help us with this. But you're so right. It comes down to us. It comes down to our choices. And wouldn't you so much rather have that control in your life rather than have somebody tell you what to do. And yes, it's the easier way out to have somebody say, oh, we're, we're going to ban this. <laughs> but I think that to have that opportunity to make good choices for yourself puts the, the power back into our own hands and says, yes, you know, technology is distracting, but we have the power to change how we use it and to use it to become more mindful. And one of my favorite examples of using technology for mindfulness is the Muse. It is a device that's at it's a headband that goes around your forehead and has EEG strips on it. And it helps you learn how to meditate through an app. And the app will actually help you to, um, is to listen to an ocean tide rising. And your goal is to try and quiet the ocean tide with your mind. And what happens in the course of five minutes with the Muse um, headband and app is that it teaches you not only how to refocus, but also how to bring your brain back from when it gets distracted so that you can really begin to develop a longer sense of focus, a deeper sense of meaning and intention, just through a practice of meditation where you can actually see over time, hey, I'm getting better at this. Like I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going and I know how to get better. And it's just, it's been such a powerful tool I've seen both for adults and even for children. I try it out on my kids uh, quite frequently and they love the ability to interact with this meditation device, but to feel like they are just playing and they're just learning, but they're secretly learning some critical skills for maintaining focus in our, in our world of digital distraction. Wow. Amy, we are, we are nearly out of time. And so that means you're going to have to come back. I hope you will accept this invitation I'm extending to you right now. Amy, we're almost out of time and I, and I hope you'll come back and this is an invitation to do so. But I, before we go, I just wanted to quickly tap into the three types of technology users really quickly, and then we're going to have to sign off and dash, unfortunately. Absolutely. So the three types of technology users are embracers, those individuals who like to try out the latest and greatest technology, the acceptors, those are individuals who are not the early adopters, but they'll use technology if they have to, maybe through a boss or just because it's such a social trend that they finally signed up for a Facebook account or whatnot. And then the last category are resistors. These are individuals who are determined to hang on to their flip phones. They don't want to join the smartphone craze. They don't see the need for technology um, in their life. And so they're fighting against trying to embrace technology in their life. And each one of these has a really important role to play in how we connect our third prong with our use of technology. And it can be domain specific. So I'll leave you with that teaser, but I think there are three powerful models for how individuals can use technology and to shape their own persona based on their personal principles and, and desires for using technology. Very well said. And that's my teaser to lead to lead our listeners back to your book. So to learn more and to find out what kind of technology user you might be, or maybe you're a hybrid, the book is The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. And the author and my guest today is Amy Blankson. To learn more about Amy and her amazing work, please visit amyblankson.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Amy Blankson and on Facebook, Amy.com. 
Blankson. We're going to jump off to another break and we'll be right back. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation about behavioral design in the digital era, structuring the balance point between productivity and well-being. My next guest is Nir Ayal, and this interview was originally recorded in November of 2020. All righty then, let's get to it. I want to tell you a little bit of a story. The other day I was flying from Los Angeles to New York and I was looking in the bookstore and I saw this book. It caught my eye and I said to myself, oh, I got to get Andrea to get this guy on the show because I think he would make a fantastic guess. Little did I know that I was going to have the great fortune of hanging out with Nir Ayal, who is the author of Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Let me toot your horn a little bit. Nir Ayal Ayal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Nir founded two tech companies since 2003 and is taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He is also an active investor in habit-forming technologies. All right, Nir, I got so much I want to cover with you. We'll see how we do. Yeah, let's dive in. <laughs> let's dive in. I am intrigued by what you call behavioral design and how the seduction of technology has the ability to hijack our attention spans. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I want to make sure I'm clear. I don't design the bad stuff. <laughs> no, 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 no. Only the, oh, he, he's a good guy. <laughs> I wrote hooked. I wrote my first book uh, to steal their secrets. And the idea was that why is it only the social media companies and the gaming companies that make technology that's so habit forming and sticky? Why can't we use the same techniques to make all sorts of other products more engaging to build healthy habits in people's lives? And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, since I published hooked five years ago, companies like FitBod uh, gets people hooked to exercising in the gym. Uh, Companies like Kahoot that I invested in, it's the world's largest educational software, gets kids hooked onto in-classroom learning. Uh, My clients include the New York Times that I have helped them get people hooked to reading the newspaper every day. So the idea here behind my work is to use the psychology uh, uh, behind engaging products and services to build good habits. Now, Given that I understand how these products work, I also understand the Achilles heel of these products and services. And so I wanted to write a book that uh, helped me. I, I was patient zero here. I wanted something to help me uh, not overuse these technologies because I, I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. Technology is wonderful. I mean, obviously, look, we're talking here from uh, miles away for with this free technology and, and distributing this message o- all over uh, the world now with these amazing technologies. So So there's a lot of good we can get out of these technologies. We just want to make sure that we can use them in such a way that they serve us as opposed to us feeling like we are serving them. Well, let's talk a little bit about the neuroscience that is going on here. Like what is happening under the human hood that we are so drawn to it? I mean, I know from a physiological um, perspective what goes on, right? We're getting dopamine and all sorts of um, good hormones running through our bodies that we love, you know, oxytocin. But how do we learn to control these internal triggers? Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a, a neuroscience joke that you won't find very funny, but there's a neuroscience joke that, that <laughs> goes something like this <laughs> that says, what's the role of dopamine in the brain? And the punchline is the role of dopamine in the, in the brain is to cons- is to confuse neuroscientists. Ah. Uh, and we have to be very skeptical when people tell us that that, uh, that these technologies are, you know, uh, releasing dopamine and addicting us and hijacking our brains. Uh, it, it, that, that typically is is an overstatement and it's used to, to, to fear monger a bit. And I understand it makes good headlines and it's very catchy and memorable. But we have to remember 
the the technology is you know dopamine is not cocaine <laughs> no dopamine true true and endorphins are released when you give someone a hug when you learn the piano when you play tennis all of this stuff you know releases squirts of dopamine so that being said i mean clearly these these technologies are designed to be engaging and of course we want them to be right do we want to tell tim cook over at apple hey apple you know the iphone it's really user-friendly. Can you make it less user-friendly? Because I want to use it a lot. Or Netflix, your shows, they're really good. Can you stop making such right. good shows? I don't I mean, want to do on. that as much. That's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. So my point is, instead of blaming uh, technology, and this is what we t- tend to see, we tend to see two categories of people when it comes to distraction. One group of people, we call them the blamers. They're the ones who say, it's technology's fault. It's Facebook. It's the iPhone. It's that oh, chocolate no, cake. No, 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 it's no, doing no. it to me. The other group, and this is the group I used to fall into, we call those the shamers. The shamers are the people like me, like I used to do, who who shame themselves. Uh, there must be something wrong with me. I, maybe I'm lazy. Maybe I'm I'm an imposter at my job. I no, don't really know what I'm doing. I, I don't have a good attention span. I, I, I have poor self-control. And we shame ourselves. And in fact, what the studies find is that when we do that, as I used to do, it makes the problem even worse. Because when we feel bad, we look for escape, guess with what? More distraction to take our minds off of those negative feelings. So we don't want to be a blamer. We don't want to be a shamer. We want to be what we call a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility, acknowledging that, look, this stuff isn't your fault. You didn't invent the chocolate cake. You didn't invent email. You didn't invent <laughs> the iPhone. This isn't your fault. But, but all it, are delicious. Yes, it, exactly. It <laughs> is your responsibility. So you can't change how you feel. You can only change how you respond to your feelings. And so what the claimers do, and I think this is a much healthier approach, is that they learn tactics to cope with with these uh, with these what we call internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional uh, states that we feel that lead us towards distraction. Because at the end of the day, the real source of distraction is not the external trigger. It's not the pings, the dings, the rings. The real source of distraction, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's that we are escaping something we don't want to feel. Yeah. Stress, anxiety, uncertainty, fatigue. That's why we turn on the television. That's why we drink from the bottle. That's why we check Facebook when we know we don't want to. It's because we do not have the capabilities to deal with these uncomfortable internal triggers, these feelings that we don't know how to cope with. So what's the solution? How do we, how do we master this? How do we get a grip on it? Yeah, so we become indistractable, and becoming indistractable has four basic steps, the first of which, the most important, the the first step has to be to master internal triggers. And so there are all sorts of techniques we can use. I I, I don't use any of these, you know, um, personal techniques. A lot lot of people in the self-help, personal development space, they kind of just make up stuff. (laughs) Everything I put in the book, you know, I I, I worked on this book for five years now, and, uh, you know, everything in the book is backed by by peer-reviewed studies, so there's about 20 pages of citations. So I draw on 30, 40 year old research from acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, There are all sorts of techniques I describe in the book, but the first most important strategy is to master the internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction, which is all about planning our day, making sure that we can actually turn these distractions, these things that we would otherwise uh, take us off track into acts of traction. So it's maybe it's important to talk about this for a second. You know, when you ask people, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you focus, but I don't agree. The, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the entomology of the word, both words come from the Latin root trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Action, yeah. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. If you sit down at your desk like I used to do every day and say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. Now I'm going to do the thing that I've been procrastinating on. Here I go. I'm finally going to get to work. But let me check email first. <laughs> Let me, Let me cross a few speed bumps. <laughs> exactly. And, that, and it feels worky, right? It feels productive, 
But I would argue that, that this is where distraction tricks you because we think, oh, that's, that's kind of a work task. That's important. I got to do that anyway. But I would argue anything that you did not plan to do with intent is just as much of a distraction. And that email is maybe a more pernicious distraction because, you know, if you're playing Candy Crush, that's obviously not what you plan to do. But if it's, you know, if you're at work, but if you're checking email when you really need to be working on that big project, you're prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And that is really pernicious. So just as anything can be distraction, anything can be an act of traction. So if you plan time for it, there's no moral hierarchy. There's nobody that says that, you know, what, what, or I don't think we should say that uh, Candy Crush is somehow morally inferior to watching football on TV. There's no difference. Anything you do with intent on your schedule according to your values, enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with it. And so that's why we need to be okay with making time for these, these acts of traction in our day, turning them from distraction into traction by planning ahead. So that's the second step. That's the cookie. Like, okay, I'm going to do do my stuff and I'm going to give myself a cookie. What do you mean? Well, you know, like the, the, the reward, like I really enjoy fantasy football. Or I really enjoy Candy Crush. Okay, so I'm going to allow myself to do that as part of my day when I accomplish these other things. To me, that's the cookie, you know, the, 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 uh, the treat. Yeah. Um, let me push back a little bit respectfully. Please what, do. What, yeah. What, here, so my book is full of turning over apple carts. <laughs> the book is full of these, uh, the, you know, the, the, the folk psychology that turns out that studies actually show backfires. And one of those things is what you just mentioned, an extrinsic reward. It turns out that when we implement an extrinsic reward, the, the cookie that says, hey, if I study for half an hour, if I clean my house for 45 minutes, if I do what I say I'm going to do, then I get some kind of reward. That has actually been shown to backfire. It makes the task less less enjoyable. It makes us less likely to do in the future because we're only doing it for the extrinsic reward as opposed to the intrinsic motivation. And so in the book, I teach you how to do what psychologists call play anything. Imagine if you could take any task and make it into play. Now, not in the Mary Poppins way of spoonful of sugar. The spoonful of sugar technique doesn't work because again, it's an extrinsic reward. The way we do it is we focus more intently on the task and we add variability to it, not so that it will be fun. The goal should not be fun or enjoyment. The goal should be so that it captures our attention long enough to help us do the task we said we are going to do. Got it. Understood. And, and wait, and where does Candy Crush fit in all this? <laughs> so so can, if you enjoy playing Candy Crush, put time in your calendar for Candy Crush, for Facebook, for YouTube, whatever it is you want to do with your time, make an appointment with yourself to do the things you enjoy. Why is this so important? For a few reasons. One, when you know that time is coming in your day, you don't ruminate on it. You don't think to yourself, oh, I wonder what's waiting for me on Facebook. I better check it. Or I, I wonder what's happening on email. I better check it. You know that, no, at certain times of the day, you will do those things that you said yourself you will do. The other reason this is so important is that, you know, most of us, we believe this myth of the to-do list. We have a hundred things on a to-do list because that's what the productivity gurus tell us to do. Have a to-do list and everything will get done. I call BS. Eh. It doesn't work. <laughs> and here's why it doesn't work. Because, you know, this would happen to me day in and day out. I, you know, this book took me five years to write and I, I implemented these techniques on my own and I, I didn't realize that I subscribed to this myth of the to-do list. And here's what would happen. I'd have a hundred things on my to-do list. I'd have a wonderfully productive day and I'd do 10 things. And then at the end of the day, I would look at my list and I'd say, oh, I still have 90 more things I didn't get done. And I would feel like a loser day after day after day. Instead, what I do now by keeping a time box calendar, and this has been validated in thousands of studies have shown that this is a highly effective technique. It's called making an implementation intention. Just a fancy way of saying doing what you're saying, what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. By making an implementation intention, what you are doing, you're not saying, I will finish this, finish that, finish this, like on you would on your to-do list. Instead, your only goal becomes to work on a task without distraction for a set period of time. Because studies have shown that we are terrible at predicting how long a task will take us to complete. We're really bad at it. So when we put on our to-do list, oh, finish the presentation, clean this, do that, if it's all about the output, we're kidding ourselves if we don't account for the input. Instead, the goal should be, your only goal should be, work on this for 30 minutes, done. 
And then with every time block in your calendar, you feel like a winner as opposed to a loser because your only goal is to prove to yourself I can work on this task without distraction for as long as I said I would and then move on to the next thing. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Nir Eyal. We're talking about Indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. To learn more, please visit Indistractable.com. You can connect with Nir at Nir Eyal. On Twitter and on Facebook, near and far. And on Instagram, for those of you out there, it is NAL99. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Put that on your list. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back. Let's continue that interview with Nir Eyal, originally recorded in November of 2020. We're talking about behavioral design in the digital era. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I am hanging out with Nir Eyal, and we are talking about his latest book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir, I want to dig deeper into becoming indistractable. So give us some more hints and help on how to do that. Sure. So we talked about step number one is about mastering those internal triggers, understanding that the root cause of all distraction is a desire to escape an uncomfortable emotion. It's some kind of, of impulse control that we need to develop in order to make sure that when we feel those uncomfortable sensations, they lead us towards traction rather than distraction. So that's step one. And there are all sorts of strategies that you can use around that that I talk about in the book. The next step is about making time for traction. And this is really about turning our values into time. So I'm not here to tell you what your value should be. What I wanna help you do is whatever it is that you say you wanna do with your time, whatever values are important to you, it's imperative that we turn those values into time, that we have a time on our calendar to do those things, to live out our values. So if taking care of your physical health is important, do you have time on your calendar for exercise, for proper nutrition, for proper rest? If being with your friends and family is important, is that time scheduled? And of course, in the workplace, do you have time? If your job requires thinking, it's amazing. You know, I do a lot of conferences and workshops and I'll ask people in the audience, you know, whose job requires critical thinking? Everybody's hand goes up. And then I say, how many of you make time in your day for focused reflection for that critical thinking? Yeah. Two hands go up out of 200 people. <laughs> I can imagine. So, so yeah. to, because we are so busy reacting all day long, reacting to emails, reacting to meetings that we have no time for reflection. And so f reflection these days is a competitive advantage in the workplace because nobody's doing it. Nobody's taking the time to actually think for 30, 45 minutes a day to decide what they want to do next in their life and their professional career. Very, very important. So we want to make time for traction using a time box calendar, which I describe exactly how to do, and then synchronizing that schedule with the various stakeholders like our boss, like our significant other on a weekly basis. So that's a big part of how we become indistractable because the big takeaway here is you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have lots of white space in your calendar, <laughs> everything's a distraction. Yes. How can you complain about getting distracted if you didn't plan what you got distracted from? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the critical second step. The third step is to hack back 
the external triggers. So the external triggers are these pings, dings, and rings, all of these things in our environment that can lead us towards distraction. And I say hack back in the in the tech terminology, you know, to hack, a computer hacker gains unauthorized access to something. And in this case, you know, our technologies, many of them gain unauthorized access to our attention because of all these pings and dings. So I argue, why not hack back? Yeah. There are so many things that we can do to make sure that we use these products and services in a way that serves us as opposed to us feeling like we are serving them. For example, two thirds of people with a smartphone, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. What? Well, how can we complain that technology is Guilty. so addictive? <laughs> Guilty. If we have, I mean, it takes five minutes. Yes, that. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, you know, we don't need every news alert. We don't need every ping and ding from Facebook to constantly interrupt us. That is the kind of hacking back we need to do in order to make sure that we're not constantly distracted by our devices. So I show you how to do that on your phone, on your computer. You know, email is a constant source of distraction. I tell you how to hack that back. Meetings. Oh my goodness. And the American workplace is full of these superfluous, unnecessary meetings. I show you how to hack those back. And most importantly, you know, when they do surveys, of what is the most distracting thing that the that the average American knowledge worker faces in their day, number one is not the computer, it's not the cell phone, it's your colleagues. The number one source of distraction in the workplace is being interrupted, especially for people who work in open floor plan offices, terrible source of distraction. So I tell you exactly how to hack back all of these external triggers that can lead you towards distraction. So that's step three. And then finally, the last step, is about preventing distraction with pacts. Pacts are these pre-commitments that we make, these promises we make to ourselves, to other people that can help us stay on track. And ironically, the solution to, as a fail-safe, as the last step to preventing distraction is using technology to help prevent distraction from technology. So I'll give you one quick example. There's a, a wonderful app, it's free, it's called Forest that I use every day. And every time I need to do focus work, every time I need to sit and think and do work that's a, a difficult task that I'm likely to get distracted while I'm doing, I'll open this app on my phone and I'll dial in how much time I need to do focused work for, 45 minutes typically. Then there's a little button that says plant, okay? And when I hit this button plant, this cute little virtual tree is planted on my screen. Now, if I pick up my phone and I do anything with it, the little virtual tree dies. Oh. Now, it, who cares, right? It's a virtual tree. It doesn't matter. But that cute little virtual tree, I don't want to kill the virtual tree. So it's enough of a reminder to remind me, nope, that's not really what I want to do right now. That's not what I want to do with my time. I want to stay focused. I want to do the thing that I said I was going to do. So we can actually use technology to prevent distraction from technology by making these pacts. I love this. Years ago, we had someone on the show from the Pomodoro Technique. And I, I you know, I noodled around with it. I, I, I used the timer for 20 minutes to see what I could accomplish. And listeners, you'd be surprised the stuff you can get done in 20 minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, you know, the Pomodoro Technique is wonderful. It's, it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people use. And, and I would argue any amount of time that you set aside to do what you say you're going to do and then accomplishing that task, this has so many benefits principally is that you are reinforcing your own agency. Yes. When we lie to ourselves day after day, as I used to do, I would say I was going to go to the gym. I wouldn't, I would say I was going to eat healthy, but I didn't. I say I was going to be fully present with my daughter, my wife, my mind would be elsewhere. I would say I was going to work on that big project, but I'd procrastinate. And this created a pattern of me convincing myself that I wasn't capable, that I wasn't good enough, that oh, I didn't have self-control. That's BS. <laughs> and it, exactly, exactly. So to break that cycle, we have to show ourselves that we have the agency. Ever in, in whatever small increment you can, this is how we become indistractable. We say we're going to do one thing and we follow through with it. It's imperative and it's the skill of the century because if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. It's only going to become more distracting, right? With augmented reality and virtual reality and God knows whatever else is coming down the pipes from Silicon Valley. There's only going to be more potential distraction. So it behooves us as well as us teaching our children how to become indistractable. And the practice that you speak of, you know, the, the, the setting time aside and following through with um, the pact is part of retraining the brain. We're talking about neuroplasticity, right? And the ability to teach old dogs and younger dogs new tricks. 
Right, exactly. So when we get into this this new behavioral pattern and acknowledge that, look, it's not the technology that's doing it to us. It's the fact that we have a certain habit, a certain impulsivity to checking our devices, to using any sort of distraction to ease our discomfort. And so what we want to do is to break that pattern. And the the, the beautiful thing is we can do this. I mean, if there's one mantra to this yes, book. Yes, we can. <laughs> absolutely can. If there's, if there's one saying I want people to remember, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. We, as a, as the human race, have this amazing ability to see into the future in a way that no other animal can. We can see what is going to happen with greater fidelity than any other creature on the face of the earth. So if you wait until the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. Yeah. If, if the it's too late. <laughs> It's too late. If the cigarette is lit, you're going to you're going to smoke it. If the phone is on your nightstand first thing in the morning when you wake up, you're going to pick it up. You've already lost because you're depending upon willpower and self-discipline and self-control. That stuff doesn't work. What works is having a system, planning ahead. That is how we can conquer every distraction. We're almost out of time. And I want to just bring up one more point in the book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. You speak about building indistractable relationships. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that because you mentioned about being present for your daughter, being present for your wife. How does it translate? It, it does, of course, but I would love for you to share how you did it. Yeah. So th that's one of the best benefits of becoming indistractable is that I am, I do what I say I'm going to do. I live with personal integrity when it comes to my relationships. And so that's taken on um, many different facets. You know, I spend more quality time with my daughter than I ever did. Uh, I've been married to my wife now for 18 years and we have a better relationship than we ever had. We used to constantly fight about why I wasn't doing my household responsibilities. Uh, we don't have those kind of fights anymore. I'm 41 now and I'm in the best physical shape of my life because I actually work out when I say, I will. So, and I'm more productive at work. I finished my, my second book and it took me five years to write this book uh, because for the first three years, I was always distracted. <laughs> so yeah. it wasn't until I, I, I sorted through all this research, you know, there's 20 pages of citations at the back of the book. It wasn't until I figured out this methodology and these four critical parts at the heart of distraction that I could finally overcome it. Well, you are a delight, and I am so glad we got to share this time together. The book we are speaking about is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life by my guest, Nir Eyal. To learn more about Nir and his work, please visit indistractable.com, on Twitter at Nir Eyal, on Facebook, Nir and Far, which is also the what your regular website too, right? Near. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Near, near and and I, I want to give the plug there because you've got some cool resources over there so people can visit there. And on Instagram, it is NAL99. Near, thank you so much and great success with this book. It, it's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest, Amy Blankson and Near Ayal, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and be kind to each other. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.